Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It's going to be the focus of our attention this morning as I share with you a message that I've titled, The Missing Ingredient. And if you've ever spent much time cooking any particular sorts of dishes, maybe you've spent a little time preparing soups or desserts or entrees or any of the above that you've had a recipe for, oftentimes we find ourselves in a situation where we've done that for a little while. Every once in a while we'll have a little bit of a slip up where we leave an important ingredient out. You ever done that sort of thing? Cooked a big meal, cooked a big dish, and then get to the end of it and say, hmm, something just not quite right about this because there's some missing ingredient. Maybe it was the salt or the butter or some certain spice that really would have made a huge difference. And that sort of experience is a common experience for individuals who cook. In fact, I came across an online forum this past week where someone had started out with a simple question, what's the dumbest thing you've ever forgotten to add to a recipe? And the individual asking that question kind of led things off a little bit by saying, for example, I just made tacos and didn't seize the filling. I didn't realize it until they'd been assembled. And in case we didn't know, the author closed with this little bit of insight, bland tacos are disgusting. Hundreds of lamenting cooks then chimed in on this discussion, and some of the responses are kind of humorous. One cook, for example, said, I made a huge back of, batch of oatmeal raisin cookies, never added the eggs. They were doorstops, they said. Another spoke up on behalf of his wife, which, guys, is a pretty risky sort of thing to do, all right? But he said, my wife, who's really trying hard to get better at cooking. Now, look, this, this man is kind of mitigating his risks a little bit with a positive way he's describing his wife's cooking. And some of you guys who have tasted a few dishes with missing ingredients might do well to kind of take note at what he's doing here. This man is looking forward to what his wife is aiming to become rather than where she currently is. So he's commending her intentions while he recalls her lessons learned. And he says of his wife that she made French onion soup one time based on a recipe that called for three cups of apple cider. Instead, she used apple cider vinegar. And so in the end, he said the results were inedible. And I can see how swapping vinegar for cider would leave a bitter taste in your mouth. Another cook confessed, I was making chocolate chip cookies and grabbed the bottle of Gravy Master instead of vanilla extract. He said, I didn't realize until they were baking and the entire kitchen smelled like beef. Beef-flavored chocolate chip cookies. Who doesn't want to come over for those, right? Sounds delicious. No, not at all. Probably the funniest response that I saw out of all these, though, was one that had to do with one of the easiest dishes that you could think of preparing. Because a woman chimed in saying, during orientation week of my freshman year of college, I lent some guy an Easy Mac and a microwave. She goes on to note that when this guy's meal didn't come out like he expected after he had microwaved it, he came back to the giver and he asked her about it. 
And she explained his mistake, to which he replied, Oh, you're supposed to add water? (laughs) This poor soul had microwaved a bowl of hard noodles and powdered cheese sauce, and he expected it to come out in this nice, mushy, gooey, wet sort of macaroni and cheese. But sometimes one missing ingredient can make all the difference. Many cooks will tell you that's the case. And that's what we're going to see in the life of a man who came to Jesus in today's passage. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we refer to as the synoptic gospels because they're so similar in the content that they present. These first three gospels of the New Testament all present the account of this one same man who comes in what Luke records for us in the passage that is our focus today. So it's probably a familiar account to you if you've spent much time studying or reading the Bible on your own. In fact, most Bibles have a heading that reads something like the rich young ruler above the passages that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke regarding this individual. But if you were only to read Luke's account, you may not get all of those details because Luke never mentions, for example, that this man who comes to Jesus is young. Only Matthew records that bit of detail. So some of the lessons, just so you know, uh, that we're going to take away from this man's life are lessons that are borrowed from the parallel accounts of the gospel authors of Matthew in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark in Mark chapter 10 that go along with the passage we're looking at here in Luke chapter 18 today. And it's interesting to study this man's encounter with Jesus because of all the people who ever came to Jesus, I think we could say that this guy seems like the most promising prospect of them all. I mean, if anyone looks like they've got it together and they're ready to encounter the Lord Jesus, it seems like this guy's got it together. Yet of all the people who ever came to Jesus, we should also know that this is the only man whom we can see in the end went away worse than when he came. Because when Jesus exposed the heart of this promising prospect, he revealed that there was a missing ingredient. In Jesus' words to this man, there was one thing you still lack, as we'll see here in this passage today. And because of what this man lacked and yet was unwilling to pursue, he went away not joyful, not looking forward to his eternity. He went away sad and grieving. So let's look at this account of the rich young ruler together as we now turn to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. If you're able, I ask that you would stand and we might honor the reading of God's word together. Luke 18, 18. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how 
hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we begin mining the treasures out of this passage, I just want you to imagine what it would be like if this man who encounters Jesus in this passage today were to come into our church and were to walk down the aisle at the end of the service saying that he wanted to know about eternal life. He wanted to inherit eternal life. Because the first thing we notice about this guy is that he's got a lot of what we might refer to as good qualities about him. In fact, the first thing I want you to notice based on his example is that many qualities of people seem good to us. Not just this individual, but like we can abstract this out and say this is a common principle for us as we kind of look around at individuals in our society. As we look at individuals in our circles, individuals in our families, as we look in the mirror sometimes, we see what we would describe as good people. We talk about people using that word good. And by that we mean that there's something honorable about their character. And let me just mention some of the things that we might deem good in a person that we find in particular in the example of this man's life. First of all, he had good financial sense. In fact, Luke records in verse 23 that this man was extremely rich. Matthew and Mark both add that he owned much property. Most of us would consider that to be a good place to be. Like, like if most of us could control our own 10 or 20 or 30 year plan, that would be kind of a state we would put at the end of it. We'd all like to have a little bit more money in the bank, a little less stress over that money in the day-to-day operations of our lives. And so long as someone isn't fleecing someone else, we consider wealth to be a basically good sort of thing. Furthermore, we might say that this man had a good age, secondly. Matthew 19, 20 refers to him as the young man. That phrase would indicate that he was somewhere roughly between the ages of 12 or 13 and his later 30s, uh, somewhere between adolescence and middle age. I personally pictured this man as somewhere roughly in his mid-30s. As I would imagine, it had taken him some time to attain his wealth, but we really don't know. He might have inherited that wealth. And so in any case, he was a young man. That's what we find clearly in the scriptures. Now, age isn't moral in and of itself, but in our culture, we presume that to be younger is to be better. That's the reason why so many of you ladies show up here with your hair dyed and with your faces made up and so on and so forth. It's the reason why so many guys go through this stage in the middle of their lives where they hit the gym and they buy a new car and they try to put things back to the way they were about a decade before. 
Pop culture magazines tend to celebrate the youthful and to neglect the elderly. And so we, if we're kind of going with the flow of the culture around us, might buy into the expectations of our culture and say that it's good to be young. It's better to be at a younger age. Well, if that's good, then this man had that going for him. He also had, thirdly, good leadership. Luke introduces this man as a leader in verse 13. We're not told what he led, what he ruled. Uh, But the word that, that indicates that he was a ruler likely indicates that he was in some position of religious or political authority in the society in which he lived. And if someone can climb the ladder of society, if someone can be recognized as a leader or a ruler, we tend to consider that a good thing. Furthermore, it appears that this rich young ruler even had, fourthly, good intentions. He comes to the right source, and he comes with the right question. That is, he comes to Jesus, and he wants to know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, in verse 18? That's an important question. He wants to know how to live forever. In spite of all that he had going good for him in his life, apparently he realized that there was a missing ingredient. There was still something that wasn't quite fulfilled in his life. He apparently realized that there was something that needed to be filled. And I just want to ask you, is that you today? Like, are you here with an unmet longing in your heart? Have you tried and tried and tried and tried and tried over and over again to do the right thing, only to realize that you still don't have a settled peace about your soul? Maybe you sought for and you've attained a measure of notoriety or influence or wealth, and yet while you dreamed about those things and while you thought when you got to the status of those things you would find true fulfillment, all you found was more longing, more expectations, more emptiness within you. You'd be wise if you are in that state to do what this man did. You would be wise to take your questions about your eternal destiny to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, this man had good intentions. He also appears to have fifthly a good attitude. We don't find it in Luke's account, but Mark reveals that this man ran up to Jesus and knelt down before him in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. He didn't come before Jesus all smug and hateful. He wasn't reluctant. He didn't hesitantly say, oh, well, my wife keeps pushing me along. Maybe I'll give this guy a shot. No, this man was eager and he was humble. He had a good attitude. Furthermore, he exercised, sixthly, good conduct. At least that's the way he saw things. And he probably saw things for himself the way that everyone around him saw about him as well. If you were to focus on the externals of this man, you'd see him always doing the right thing. So when Jesus asks him to keep five of the Ten Commandments related to how he interacts with his fellow man in verse 20, he says with confidence in verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, we don't have a record of him being ridiculed at this point by the swarms of people who were crowding around Jesus wherever he went. 
So the crowd apparently generally agreed that this guy had it all together. This was a good guy. And, and I think about that scenario. Like if this rich, young, influential, good-intentioned man came to our church and walked the aisle with this important question and a worshipful spirit, we probably would have welcomed him with open arms. In the average church, if a, if a man like that would walk down the aisle, the church wouldn't turn him away. We'd make him the church treasurer. So when Jesus does something different than we would do, we should ask, why? Like, does Jesus need to go for evangelism training here? Did Jesus miss the mark about the right way to receive individuals, to, to you know, make friends, build happy and healthy re- relationships? No. Jesus is the Lord of all. So when he steps into this situation and does something different, then we need to pay attention to why that might be. And as we do that, this becomes a way for us to engage our own hearts, to engage our own lives, to to engage our own practices as individuals sharing the gospel, as a church receiving individuals, so that we might know what's important. What's the missing ingredient? What is it that needs our attention that Jesus and Luke as the divinely inspired author through whom God is speaking, is revealing to us what's the most important ingredient that we could be missing or that this man was missing. Now, I want to make a statement that might shock some of you at first, but hear me out on this. Here's the next thing I want you to notice from this passage. Good people deserve eternal life. You may say, now that sounds like it flies in the face of what you preach here every Sunday, Pastor Jeremy. Well, just look at what Jesus says. When this rich young ruler comes to him and asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know, what can I do to be good enough to please God and to live with him forever? And Jesus responds to him in verse 20 with these words. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. That is, Jesus is telling this man, do you want something to do to deserve eternal life? Then keep my law. Do it perfectly. Keep a perfect, pure heart, free of adultery, free of murder, free of theft, free of dishonesty, free of disrespect. And look, we've got to face the facts here. If you can do that, if you can show yourself purely flawless and a good individual in the truest sense of that word, you deserve eternal life. That's why we read, for example, these words from the Lord in Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. That is, if you can live out God's law, then you will live. So we must acknowledge here that good people deserve eternal life. But here's what Jesus shows us in the life of this man who comes to encounter him in this passage. There's only one problem. There truly are no good people. No truly good people. Because what we might describe as a good person 
is, a, is only a person who is good in relationship to other people. Like when we're saying that someone is a good person, we're kind of comparing them with the other people that they live around. We're saying, well, you know, didn't murder like that person over there. Didn't, didn't cheat on his wife like that person over there. So this is a pretty good person. We're comparing them with kind of the average swath of humanity that lives around them. But that standard won't hold up when we compare that person to the holy and just almighty God. In fact, Jesus shows us that in verse 19, when the man comes up and he calls him good teacher, Jesus makes a statement that draws our attention to the sincerity of what that man would describe as good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, let me just say, don't get tripped up by that statement. Jesus isn't claiming that he's not good, and Jesus isn't claiming that he's not God. If he were not good, then he would have had to have sinned. The Bible is clear that Jesus never sinned, and the Bible is also clear that Jesus Christ is the Word of God who was in the beginning with God who has become flesh to interact with us that we might be redeemed. Jesus isn't contradicting any of that as some cults might proclaim he's doing through this passage. He's simply drawing this man's attention to true goodness. He's simply trying to evaluate how are you using this word good. When that word good is used in the New Testament, it's primarily used to speak of spiritual and moral excellence. Jesus had all of that, but this man was probably only using this word as a form of flattery as he stood before Jesus. Jesus, in essence, told this man that everyone else thought was good not to throw this term out at himself as though he were merely being polite or kind. Because it's not enough to flatter Jesus. If you're going to come to him as a source of true goodness, then you better believe what you're saying. Don't say it unless you mean it. As one of my favorite pastors of all time, the late Adrian Rogers once said, you can't just tip the hat to Jesus. You've got to bow the knee to Jesus. And this man needed to understand that his own goodness wasn't good enough and that Jesus's goodness was something beyond his own. In fact, what we find here in this passage is Jesus showing us how to share the gospel with good people. We meet these kind of people all the time. They're decent people. They're moral people. Maybe they grew up in church. Perhaps their parents taught them right from wrong. They live responsibly. They can hold down a job. They pay their taxes. They obey the law. They remain faithful to their spouses. Maybe they even go and give to the local church. They volunteer to coach kids or to serve meals at the soup kitchen. They're good people. And you'd be happy to have them living next door to you as your neighbors. But no matter how good they may seem, they do not have eternal life purely because of their goodness. Because as Jesus shows us in this passage, it's not enough to be a very good person. Even very good people need salvation because not a single one of us is good enough. That's why Jesus points this man to the law. Because God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, reveals to us that not a single one of us is good by God's standards. 
Now, if you could keep the law perfectly, you would deserve eternal life. But God's word reveals in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. As Paul would describe in Galatians, the law has become our tutor to point us to Christ. When we learn that we're sinners, we flee to the cross that we might be forgiven. Furthermore, the Bible reveals in Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. That is, we sin because we are sinners at heart. A man isn't a liar because he lies. He lies because he's a liar at heart. A man isn't a thief because he steals. He steals because he is a thief at heart. And over and over, Jesus reveals to us that sin is a consequence of a lousy heart. That's why he took the Ten Commandments down to the heart level when he preached his sermon on the mount. Jesus says if you're angry with your brother or you call him a fool, you are guilty of murder. Jesus says that if you, if you look upon a woman with lust for her, you are guilty of adultery in your heart. You see, the sin happens at the heart level. And while this man may have seemed good on the outside, he had a heart problem that needed the good physician to step in and provide a diagnosis. And the problem that we see revealed in this man's heart was the problem of idolatry. He was trusting in something other than God. And whatever a man trusts in, that is his idol. This man was trusting in his wealth. So Jesus gave him a challenge. Jesus wanted him to see his sin. Jesus wanted him to flee from that sin. So Jesus told this man, there's one thing you still lack. There's one missing ingredient. Sell all your possessions and distribute them to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. But that man went away sad. He went away distraught. Because Jesus had exposed the idolatry of his heart. That man claimed to have kept all of the commandments. But when Jesus gave this one scenario that that caused him to realize he hadn't kept any of them. He went away sad. You'll recall earlier in Luke's gospel that a lawyer had come to Jesus wanting to know what to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus responded with the summary of the Ten Commandments that we know as the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is likened to it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus gave this summary of the law, he gave a standard that this man was now breaking on both sides of the equation. He wasn't loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength because his wealth had too much of his heart sitting on the place of the throne of his heart, such that Christ could not reign there. He would not sell all that he possessed and come and follow. He would not obey the Lord giving him this direct command. And furthermore, he wouldn't love his neighbors as himself. He could have given of his riches. He could have provided for those in need. And yet when Jesus calls him out with this direct command, he will not respond because of the idol who reigns in his heart. Now, look, let's confess here for a minute. 
This is a challenging call from Jesus. I, I mean, who of us wants to sell all that we have and give to other people so that we can follow Jesus? That's not an easy call to follow. And we should know that this is not a universal command from Jesus either. Not everyone is called to take these same steps. Otherwise, Jesus would have told Zacchaeus to do the same thing in Luke chapter 19 when that rich man came to faith. But the true question for you and me is this. If Jesus did ask you to do that, would you be willing? Or are we trusting in our riches and our possessions more than we're trusting in him? A remarkable statement appears in Mark's version of this account in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Mark says, looking at him in this moment, when this man says that he's kept the commands all of his life, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. But it's Jesus isn't trying to drive this man away. Jesus is trying to drive this man to a state of acknowledging his own desperate state of affairs. And look, friends, love always leads to the truth. I, I mean, you can't tell someone you love them and then give them something that's going to lead them astray and lead them into destruction. Jesus is showing this man the error of his ways in hopes that he will behold the very love of God that stands in his presence. This man needed to see his desperate estate so that he would cry out for rescue and friends we must do the same thing because none of us is good enough on our own but this leads us to our next point our only hope is not in our goodness it is in God's grace when this man walks away Jesus says in verse 24 how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples are amazed at these words, and really they should be. Like, you think about that, right? You think about having a little sewing needle with an eye on the end, you string, you know, some string through. Can you imagine running a camel through that little puppy dog? Not going to happen, right? Totally impossible. That's what we think about, and really that's the reality of what Jesus is showing us here. It is impossible. It is impossible for us to do something to earn eternal life. That's not what God's calling us to do through the law. God's pointing us to our need for his grace, which appeared in the face of Jesus Christ, who has borne our wrath, been acquainted with our sorrows, has gone to the cross so that you wouldn't have to face the death that you deserve for your sins. He bore it all, my friends, so that you might receive his righteousness that you might be declared right before God, that you might have eternal life through faith in Him. And so the disciples are amazed at this impossible statement. And they say in verse 26, then who can be saved? And old friends, listen to this. Our hope is not in our goodness. It is in God's grace. For Jesus says the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. That is, if you're going to enter eternal life, you're not going to do it through your own effort. You're not going to do it with your own goodness. You need God's grace. 
to make the difference. And the more wealth we trust in, the more security we build around our lives, the less likely we are to turn to God for safety. At the end of the day, we find that the wealthy man's self-sufficiency had become his greatest deficiency. And now you might be listening to this and you might say, well, it sure is a good thing that I'm not a rich person. Man, this would really be a convicting message if that was the case. Listen to these statistics from globalrichlist.com, all right? You ever want to really feel good about your finances? Go to globalrichlist.com and you'll find, for example, that if you make at least $1,305 a year, you are in the top half of the richest people of the world by income. Furthermore, if you make minimum wage in North Carolina and you work an entire year, your your annual income would be about $15,080. That would place you in the top 7.8% of the richest people in the world by income. Or let's kind of take the average for our area. In North Carolina, the average per capita income is $29,456 a year. At least in 2018, that was the per capita personal income in North Carolina. If you made that right now, that would place you in the top 1.29% of the richest people in the world. And what we find is that we all, all of us, need the truth of Galatians 2.16, where Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even We have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified. How, Paul? By your works? No, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And Paul goes on to kind of describe the futility of what Christ's mission had been if, in fact, he had gone to the cross when you and I could have just kept the law. I mean, if we could have done it on our own, then what's the point of Jesus coming and facing all the ridicule, all the mocking, all the scourging, and the nailing to the cross? As Paul says in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. But Jesus didn't die needlessly, friends. He came to pay a debt you owed. And he's come to offer that to you. By grace. Through faith. And so this is the real missing ingredient. The real ingredient this man needed in his life was the grace of God. And if you don't take hold of his grace by faith, by entrusting your life to him, then you will walk away and spend an eternity with the same sadness that this man experienced walking away from Jesus in this moment. The final thing I want you to see in this passage is that nothing, nothing this world offers can compare with what Jesus offers. On October the 1st, 2018, President Trump spoke from the Rose Garden at the White House to announce a new trade deal that had been made with Mexico and Canada that would replace the North American Free Trade Agreement, commonly known as NAFTA. And as he spoke about that deal, the president claimed, I have long contended that NAFTA was perhaps the worst trade deal ever made. Now, I mean no disrespect to our president, 
But what we have before us in this passage, my friends, is in fact the worst trade deal ever made. Or maybe we should refer to it as the best trade deal that has ever been refused. Because Jesus offered to this man eternal heavenly riches. And he chose instead to hold on to his earthly fading trinkets. Friends, that's an awful deal to take. And I hope, I hope you're not letting your fleeting treasures keep you from eternal treasures. Jesus said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he summarizes saying, you cannot serve God and wealth. You see, God is not content, my friends, to have a duplex for his throne. You can't have two gods. You can't rest your trust in two separate resources. And so Peter, kind of realizing all that's going on, realizing that this man walked away from the opportunity to follow Peter has some words for Jesus. He, he wants to know, I mean, like all of us, I think, from time to time, find ourselves in the state of, man, really, is it worth what we've done? And, and so he says in verse 29, verse 28, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. Like P- Peter's saying, like, really, Jesus, look at, what, look at what we've done. And Jesus provides the reassuring word that Peter needs. Jesus provides the reassuring word that you need if you are walking as a Christian and you're facing difficulties in your life and you're starting to wonder, what I've given up, is it, is it worth it all? What's Jesus' response in verse 29? He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Look, Jesus is essentially saying, it's impossible for you to give up more than I'm giving to you. It's impossible. You can't do it. So that thing that you're hanging on to, that that thing that's going to plunge you into destruction, let go of it, my friends, because I can give you more, is what Christ is telling you in this moment. In 1845, a group of British explorers led by Captain Sir John Franklin headed out on two ships, and they were headed out to explore the Arctic regions around the North Pole. The entire expedition, comprised of 129 men, was soon thereafter lost, not heard from for years. When the graves and the wreckage of these men were found decades later, scientists discovered their fate. They had died of malnutrition. They died of hypothermia because they didn't have enough coal on the ship to stay warm as they navigated around these Arctic regions. Furthermore, cut marks on some of the skeletal remains of some of those crew members made it apparent that other crew members had turned to cannibalism in a last-ditch effort to survive. They'd been poorly prepared for the challenges they would face on that fated expedition. Instead of providing 
room on board their two ships for storing additional food and coal for steam engines. These luxurious adventurers had actually used that space that could have been filled with coal, could have been filled with food, to provide a large library, a barrel organ, china place settings, and cut glass wine goblets. So needless to say, when they ran out of coal, as they did, their books and their teacups and their ornate musical instruments were not enough to warm their freezing bodies. Years later, when the search party found the remains of these men who had set off to walk for help, they discovered one skeleton dressed in fine blue cloth in a uniform that was edged with silk braid, sadly grasping in his hand a place setting of sterling silver flatware. And you know, we look back and we say, what a foolish thing to do. To trade the life-sustaining necessities of coal and food, to hold on to the luxuries of a library and silverware. But you know, their physical danger is our spiritual danger. The danger for you and me is that we would cling so tightly to the luxuries of our lives, the wealth, the relationships, the convenience, the status. The danger is that we would hold on to all of that and leave no room for the Lord who offers us the sustaining gift of eternal life. And I don't know what it is that you might be struggling to give up today. It may be money. It may be a relationship with a man or a woman. It may be a pill or a drug or alcohol. It it may be a habit. It might be a dream for success. It might be a lifestyle choice. It might be a stubborn streak that just causes you to want to do things your own way. I mean, it may be a million other things. Because we could fill this room up with as many idols as there are people, truth be told. But if you and I love anything more than Christ, that is a soul-defeating, faith-destroying idol in our hearts. But on the authority of God's Word, from the very lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can tell you this. There is nothing that you can give up for Him that He will not replace many times over with something better. Not just in this life, but in the age to come. So if you're sitting here and you're associating yourself with this rich young ruler and you're thinking, I just can't let it go because that's where the happiness is. That's where the satisfaction is. That's where the joy is. That's where the fulfillment is. Jesus is saying to you today, child, let it go. And I'll replace it with so much more that you'll wonder why you ever even hesitated. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, if we're honest, we are all prone to cling to our treasures. Sometimes it's a treasure of wealth. Sometimes it's a treasure of convenience. Sometimes it's just a treasure of Enjoying life the way it is right now. God, you deserve so much more than this. And God, I just pray that you'd use the example of this man to 
probe around in our hearts a little bit. Help us to know, God, what, what is it that's sitting on the throne of our hearts that would keep you from reigning there? Is there a missing ingredient, God, in our lives? Is there a missing ingredient in the lives of those of us who gather here today that might cause us, oh Lord, to, to think we've got it all together, to think that we're good enough, to think that if we just keep with the status quo and impress those around us, that everything's going to go good with us. God, if that's the status of our heart today, then I pray that you would break us apart by your very law so that we might come humbled, we might come ready, we might come longing for your grace. And God, I just want to thank you that that grace is what you long to provide. I want to thank you that you are not willing that any should perish, but are desiring that all would have eternal life. So God, if that is the status of any heart in this place today, if there are those who have yet to acknowledge, have yet to come with faith saying, I need what Jesus provides if I'm going to be saved, and God, I pray you'd help them to know that you desire for them to come. You are not wanting to keep them away. You've moved heaven and earth to send your own son to die in our place. And so, Father, if that's the need of any heart here today, help us to behold your grace in the face of Christ. God, if that's a need for someone here today, I pray you just help them to pray a little prayer. It might be a prayer like this. Maybe this is the status of your heart today, and you want to pray a prayer like this. Well, God, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I need to be forgiven of my sins. Help me to turn away from confidence in myself. Help me to turn away from confidence to anything other than you and to turn fully to your grace. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me. I thank you that you offer me forgiveness. I thank you that you justify me, not because of my works, but because of what Jesus has done in my place. So now I cry out, save me, Lord Jesus. Make me new. Give me a new heart, a new plan, a new purpose. Turn me away from my old pursuits and help me, O oh Lord, to live for you because you deserve it. If that's the prayer of your heart today, I want you to know this is what Christ has come to provide for you. Grace, rich and free. Mercy and abundant supply. And if that's the prayer of your heart today, would, would you also say, Lord, would you give me the courage to make my decision, my clinging to you, my coming to you known today. Lord, I want to make it public because you've told me that's what I need to do. Whoever will confess you, you will confess before your Father in heaven. So, Father, give us courage today. If that's a decision that anyone has made, is making, desires to make, that we would step forward, O oh Lord, and find your grace ever rich, ever sweet, ever free. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.